Who is the most confident person you know? It's got to be someone you know. can't be Taylor Swift or Michael Jordan, either the actor or athlete. If you're uh, bothered like me, like me by superlatives, just think of someone confident that you know. Maybe they're in this room. The first person I thought of, you know well, but is not in this room. We're not going to talk about him behind his back since he's not here. (laughs) Although I'm sure I could come up with some entertaining stories. Another person that I thought of that you don't know, at least I assume so, is one of my uncles. Uh, my, one of my uncles, he's the, the oldest of, in his family, and he was a born coach. He's a free thinker. He's really willing to try anything uh, to extreme. I believe he started taking improv comedy classes in his 60s or 70s, and will sometimes just get up in front of a bunch of people having no idea what he's going to say and just going with it. I, I could share other stories, but again, I don't think it would be appropriate for this context. What makes my uncle so confident? What makes the person that maybe you're thinking of so confident? For my uncle, he's got a great sense of humor. He can tell a joke to set people at ease. Uh, he's well-read. He's intelligent. Uh, he can kind of have a conversation no matter what your interest is, and be, be able to be conversant in that situation. Usually, his, his confidence doesn't come across as, as arrogance, but his confidence is normally expressed in a genuine interest in other people. Like, he's a great listener because he's not thinking of himself. He's confident in himself, so he's able to focus on the individual in front of him. Are those maybe some of the things that you thought of for the confident person that you were thinking of? Or maybe the person you were thinking of maybe comes across more as arrogant. Their confidence goes that direction some of the time. What about you? Are you a confident person? And what would it mean for you to grow in confidence today? You know, in our, in our quest to gain confidence or to just appear to be more confident to others, uh, we naturally look inside ourselves, don't we? That's our default. I did a Google search on how to build confidence, and the first result came up from some website called futurelearn.com. Uh, find lots of interesting tips there. But anyways, futurelearn. .com recommends we build confidence by practicing self-affirmations. Self-affirmations. So you're supposed to tell yourself these things in order to gain confidence. So I tried this before this sermon in the mirror. Um, I choose to believe I am confident. There's uh, four of them. I am confident. So you see the transition. Okay, now I'm confident and I value myself. I'm confident in my abilities And fourth, I let go of limiting beliefs and choose to trust myself. We'll see how how that helps me here today. (laughs) Uh, For the sake of argument, 
I want us to just grant that confidence is generally a good thing. But I want to explore with you all a more reliable source than futurelearn.com on how to build confidence and more importantly, a better source, a better foundation for our confidence than ourselves. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Uh, Psalm 110 is kind of in the middle of your Bible. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles provided, it's on page 535. Psalm 110, page 535 in the Pew Bibles. And even if you don't normally open your Bibles, um, maybe today is the day because we're going to be turning around more than we normally do here at Henson to some other passages. Let me read Psalm 110 for us. A Psalm of David. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Did you notice how confident the psalmist, uh, the certainty of the he wills in verses 5 through 7? He will, he will, he will. The surety of the oath in verse 4 from, from the Lord, Yahweh, all caps, that he will not take back. And then it begins with this declaration from the Lord. I think this is one of the most confident songs slash prayers in all the Bible. And it is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, called Psalm 110 the truly supreme chief psalm of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. So today, we want to just explore a little bit the source of King David's confidence and how it's better than self-confidence. So here's my argument from Psalm 110. Be confident in God's Messiah. Be confident in God's Messiah. Specifically, we are called to be confident in his reign, his representation, and his victory. His reign, his representation, and his victory. My prayer for us is that no matter what you're going through today, that you will find fresh confidence that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns as king, that he serves as our great high priest before God, and he will certainly return to make all things new. So be confident in God's Messiah and his rule. We see this in verses 1 through 3. But before we get to verses 1 through 3, let's briefly consider Psalm 108 and Psalm 109, 
which I think are like the drum roll that gets us ready for Psalm 110. King David writes in Psalm 108, verse 1, My heart is confident, God. But then, by Psalm 109, verse 22, he says, same guy, David says, I am suffering and needy. My heart is wounded within me. I fade away like a lengthening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. Is David like many of us? Confident in some contexts, confident some days, other days feeling needy, insecure, suffering. Well, let's see how Psalm 109 concludes before we get here to Psalm 110. For, this is in verse 31 of Psalm 109, for he, that's the Lord, stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who would condemn him. You know, even when David is feeling needy and under attack from his enemies, he's confident that the Lord, his God, stands at his right hand to save him. But that begs the question, is he really, though? Is he really confident? How can he be sure that the Lord God is for him and that he will be saved? Enter Psalm 110. Listen as I read again. A Psalm of David. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. In Psalm 109, verse 31, David was confident that the Lord was at his right hand. And here in Psalm 110:1, we see what, or rather who, grounds David's confidence. It's God's right-hand man. You know, at first reading, verse 1 is a little confusing. So let me, let me paraphrase. Yahweh, all caps, says to David's Lord, sit in the place of greatest honor until I make your enemies your ottoman or your footrest. In the ancient Near East, uh, victorious kings would literally put their foot on the necks of their enemies to symbolize their victory, that they had driven these enemies and these nations into the ground. This is something of the image that we have here in verse 1 of what Yahweh has accomplished for His anointed one, David's Lord. In verse 2, we see that Yahweh extends the Lord's scepter from Zion. A scepter is a symbol of authority and rule. And Zion is Salem, not Salem, Oregon, uh, but Jerusalem, known as the place of shalom, of peace and rest. This isn't the first time that we've seen the Lord's anointed ruling, reigning from Zion. In another confident psalm, Psalm 2, God in heaven laughs at the raging nations in rebellion against Him because, in in Psalm 2, verse 6, He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So Zion is like a symbol for heaven's footstool, a place on earth that represents God's reign in heaven. Back to Psalm 110, verse 2, even though the enemies are surrounding David's Lord, it's not a problem. 
for the Lord Yahweh has given his king the scepter. I couldn't, I couldn't help but think of, of Thor, you know, from Marvel's comics, surrounded by his enemies, but he has the hammer. Thor is not concerned, and neither is David's Lord. You know, this Lord, as we see in verse 3, has an army of volunteers. Rather than fear and trepidation about the upcoming battle, the people look to the king and their, their hearts swell with pride. They want in. Let's go. In the second half of verse 3, we see that holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. So early in the morning, this king is ready. He's not tired. His muscles are popping. He's swole. He's full of youthful vigor, and he's ready to conquer, ready to win, ready to rule. I think this is the picture we see of David's Lord, God's right-hand man in verses 1 through 3. He's strong. He's majestic. He's eager. He's young. He's powerful. And the source of his rule, even this king doesn't look to himself, but it comes from Yahweh himself. Enemies don't stand a chance against this king. This is David's Lord. He's the king of heaven, the Lord's king, and his reign is unstoppable. Do you believe this king is for real? Unlike Thor, do you believe that this king reigns from heaven? If so, how does that shape your confidence today? If this is who's reigning from heaven, how is that impacting your day, your week, as you think about the trouble in the world and in your life? You know, I think we can often fake our confidence or be misguided in our confidence. Even religious people can place their confidence in the wrong place, all the while attending church, doing Christian things. 2,000 years ago, most of the Pharisees living in Jerusalem, they probably would have been able to quote Psalm 110 by memory. They believed that God would send his king from, from heaven, from King David's lineage, to free them from oppression, uh, to restore the throne of Israel, to be a political Messiah. And yet when that king showed up, well, this is where I'm going to have you turn, if you'd like, to Matthew 22, verse 41. Matthew 22, 41. The Pharisees are testing Jesus. We considered this parallel passage earlier this summer in the Gospel of Mark. It's also in the Gospel of Luke. It's Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He turns to Psalm 110. So while the Pharisees were together, this is Matthew 22, verse 41, Jesus questioned them. They've been questioning him. Now it's Jesus' turn. And he says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? That's Jesus talking to the Pharisees. They, the Pharisees, replied, David's. So Jesus asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, see Jesus' view of God's Word, David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord. 
The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? The Pharisees were confident that the Messiah would be David's son. And Jesus is not saying that they're wrong. He's just saying that he's a whole lot more than merely David's son. He is David's Lord. And surely, David would not call anyone, King David, like the greatest king in Israel's history, would not call anyone Lord but God himself. So Jesus is saying, my point exactly, the Messiah is not only David's son, he is God himself. The religious leaders were so confident in their interpretation of the psalm, they're so trapped in their nearsightedness, they think Jesus is a blasphemer, how dare he say this? It's not maybe as subtle to them as it is to us. He's saying, that's who's among you. David's Lord, that's me. So the religious leaders commit themselves to commit the greatest evil of all time. In their jealousy, in their fear, in their arrogance, they crucify David's greater son, David's Lord. God's Messiah. You know, you don't need me to tell you that there's nothing more dangerous than a confident religious person. If we truly believe that our rights and our beliefs come from above, our confidence can lead to so much damage, violence, judgment, Think of the spiritual abuse in so many churches, pastors, preachers, using God's Word to do horrible evils in the name of God. Think of the prosperity preachers on TV asking for money so that you might be rich and be blessed. It's obvious when it's scandalous and like that. But I think we can fall into the same trap as the religious leaders and the prosperity gospel preachers today because we love our rule. We like it. We like being in control, just like those Pharisees. God exists to make us happy, right? He exists to serve us, And when God doesn't neatly fit into our expectations of the wonderful plan that we have for our life, well, we cast him aside or worse. We do this all the time in subtle ways. So it should not surprise us that when Jesus confronted the Pharisees with his true identity, they killed him. But consider with me, as you turn back to Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3 again, how God's Messiah exercises his reign in spite of our rebellion. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, 
it was like a coronation ceremony. Sin and death were crushed under Christ's feet. The cross was like Christ's mighty scepter that Yahweh gave to his son to rule from Zion so that his son might rule over his surrounding enemies of sin and death. And what appeared to be God's Messiah's greatest defeat, Christ was reigning. So, remember, when our lives are plagued with trouble from within and without, let's remember how the Lord loves to use the very instruments of death to highlight the glory and the reign of King Jesus. Jesus' reign won't be stopped, even by our rebellion, even when it looks like the self-righteous, arrogant, jealous Pharisees had won. Jesus was reigning, not the way that we would have expected him to reign, not the way that his disciples had hoped that he would reign. I think this is instructive for us today. Let's allow our pain to cause us to submit to his reign. Allow your pain to be the instrument which reminds you of Christ's reign. For this is how Christ took up his his reign, on the cross. The Lord will always use suffering and pain in the life of the believer to wean us off the things that we tend to put our confidence in, our circumstances, our feelings, our gifts, our families, our plans, ourselves. That's, Christian, why he has brought suffering into your life. Not because he is angry at you, but because he loves you. And he wants to reign in your life. All these things that we tend to put our confidence in are not worthy of our confidence. Well, Jesus identifies himself not merely as David's promised son, but David's Lord, sent by Yahweh, entrusted with the rule of Yahweh, and Christ's reign is cross-shaped. Death and sin surround him on every side, but there's Jesus on the cross, reigning from Zion. The cross calls us to pour contempt on all our pride, our self-confidence, and look to a better king than the one that we would have shaped in our own image. So friends, considering the rule and the reign of Christ, let our confidence be cross-shaped. Instead of practicing self-affirmation, practice cross-affirmations. Get beneath the foot of the cross And remind yourself what the cross says about our sin and how it's forgiven. This is who Christ is, brothers and sisters. He's reigning as the crucified and resurrected king. He sits down at heaven, in heaven, at the right hand of God because his work is finished. That's where our confidence should lay. Right there at the right hand of God. Well, it's not only in the reign of the Messiah King that we find confidence. It's in that this King who rules also represents us. 
So we see this in point two, his representation. Be confident in God's Messiah and his representation. We'll see this in verse four. In verse one, we heard Yahweh speak a declaration to David's Lord. He was to rule in power and holy splendor. In other words, we see Jesus the King in verses one through three. But God's Messiah is not some distant ruler, you know, up in a press box at the big game, surrounded by security. No, this king has drawn near as our priestly king, our representative. That's what we see here in verse 4. The king of heaven has drawn near and he's for us. So listen to verse 4 again. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. What's the job of a priest? Kids, do you know? What's the job of a priest? Well, priests had many jobs, but kind of their big one overall was to represent humanity before a holy God. God's right-hand man, he's not just any priest. It says he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek isn't just a great name if you homeschool your kids and have like 10 kids, you know, and you're running out of names, or a great Halloween costume. Kids, I have ideas. You can talk to me later. If you want to be Melchizedek for Halloween, I think it would be great. Uh, Melchizedek is an elusive figure who shows up mysteriously to Abram in Genesis 14. He's the king of Salem, but he's also a priest to the Most High God. And Melchizedek shows up, and he blesses Abram, bringing uh, bread and wine. And he, he, consider what I just said. Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abram. Only the greater blesses the lesser. And Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe of everything he owns. Like the whole interaction, I, I can't remember, is like three or four verses. It's interesting. <laughs> it's kind of out of the blue, kind of weird. And then Psalm 10 comes along. And reveals that Melchizedek is a type. He's like foreshadowing of what God is doing in the larger story of history. He's to prepare us for David's Lord, this this kingly priest. So I hope you're starting to see even the escalation in Psalm 110 itself. It's like Psalm 1 through 3, or verses 1 through 3, he's the king. It's like, and that's not all. He's drawn near. He's a king-priest. He's here to represent a people before the throne of God above, just as we have been singing throughout the service. Uh, the Lord swears an oath, promises not to take it back, so that our confidence in this priest-king might be rock solid. Uh, you know, if, look at verse 4 again. It's kind of crazy that the Lord is swearing an oath. We are warned in Scripture by the Lord not to take oaths in in many circumstances, but the Lord wants us to take this promise that he's making to the bank. The source of our confidence here in this priest king, David's Lord, will never depreciate or wear out because he's a priest forever. Earlier in the service, our brother John read from Hebrews 7 on why that matters, that he's a priest who reigns forever. Why does that matter? Let me remind you, because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely 
those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Let that sink in. That's why it matters that our priest lives forever. If you place your confidence in your good looks, they're going to fade. I'm sorry to say. If you place your confidence in your money, you can't take it with you. The market may crash too. Uh, Your friends and family will change. To say it in a morbid way, everybody dies. Uh, Everything is always changing. And then in the midst of all this change and turmoil surrounding our lives, we have this priest king seated solidly on the throne. God's right-hand man, the one unchangeable person in the universe, and he's the only reliable source of our confidence today. Hebrews 7.26 brings it home. This is the kind of high priest we need. What's he like? Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Brothers and sisters, this is who represents you. Does that do anything for you this morning? You know, some of you may be sitting here uh, thinking, like, I, yeah, I'm a Christian. You may identify as a Christian, but if you're honest with yourself, even now, you know that you're doing most of the representation to God. You convince yourself when you're feeling guilty or ashamed, like, well, I've done a lot of good things, or I'm not as bad as that person. Uh, I, I go to church. I've given a lot of money. Look at, look at all the things that I've done, God. You would never say it like that, but that can be our confidence. You're, you're hoping that at, at the end of the day, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. God will accept you. But friends, if that is how we are justified before a holy God, Why in the world would God have sent his son at such cost to be the the right-hand man to represent us? You know, I think Psalm 110 verse 4 is when this psalm becomes really good news. Yes, the Messiah is powerful. We should place our confidence in his rule. He's in control. He's sovereign. But here in verse 4, we see the goodness of Jesus. We see that the Lord's right-hand man is good. He offers his life for ours on the cross. His resurrection is proof that the Father accepted the Son's sacrifice. So friends, if, if you suspect that you're trusting in your own life before a holy God, today is the day to find a better lawyer. Today is the day to turn from yourself and trust in Christ, God who is for you. God won't turn back any who come to him in the name of his son. For if God is for you, who can be against you? As we've mentioned a couple times already, today is Reformation Sunday the day where we remember and celebrate the recovery of the gospel and the Protestant Reformation. Uh, God used many events and many different people 
to bring about the Protestant Reformation, but kind of the, like, the mascot of the Protestant Reformation is the German monk uh, named Martin Luther, lived in the 16th century. For much of his life, Luther hated God. He felt like God was angry at him because of his sin. He thought God's righteousness was against him. Uh, But then Luther rejoiced when he discovered that through Christ, God's righteousness was credited to his account. His sin, Luther's sin, was placed on Christ, and Luther got the righteousness of God in Christ. Uh, In other words, God's right-hand man became Luther's right-hand man. And when Luther considered what he called this sweet exchange in the gospel, what he said is this, this famous quote, perhaps you've heard it before, here, in the imputation of Christ to him, here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Martin Luther, in his life, knew the joy and the confidence of paradise even before his dying day. When he struggled for so long, he would spend hours confessing his sin and whipping himself and doing all sorts of crazy things because he thought God was against him. And then the gospel finally hit him, and he felt like he was in paradise. Is that how you feel today? Because of the gospel? Because of your great high priest? Friends, this is our hope. We've considered God's rule, Christ the King. We've considered Christ as our kingly priest and his representation of sinners like us. But the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So third, be confident in God's Messiah and his victory. Listen as I read verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, we have a transition here in verse 5. David speaks now to the Lord Yahweh directly about the coming victory of the Lord's king. Notice the certainty. I already pointed this out earlier, but did you see this in verses 5 through 7? He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. David has no doubt. The Messiah is literally crushing it in the future. This is the result of what we saw in verses 1 through 4. The Messiah's enemies, they don't stand a chance. Kings, nations, leaders of the world who oppose God's Messiah, they're going to be crushed. Hamas, North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, don't stand a chance. The United States, as we continue to call what is good evil and what is evil good, will be crushed. After all the Messiah's judging, you would think that he may be tired. Like, this, is, this has been exhausting. <laughs> There's a lot of evil out there to crush. But the king's just getting started. Look at verse 7. Messiah lifts up his head. He's refreshed and ready for more. Verses 5 through 7 anticipate the victory of both the cross as well as the final victory of Christ's second coming. 
Christ laid the groundwork for his victory by his death, resurrection, and ascension. And it's just only a matter of time until he puts the final nail in the coffin of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul riffs a little bit on Psalm 110, rejoicing that because of the resurrection of Jesus, it's only a matter of time till we'll be raised with Christ and then the end will come. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, so he is Christ. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, do you hear the echoes of Psalm 110, verses 5 through 7 there? For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, Psalm 110.1. The last enemy to be abolished is death. At the cross, the victory has been won. But we don't see all the results yet. Not yet. We see the change in, in the hearts and the lives of those who have been transformed by this priestly king. But we can be confident that he will finish the job. You know, if you haven't yet been filled with confidence in Jesus, your king and priest, I hope that even now the Holy Spirit will be working in your heart to give you certainty that these three verses will come about. It must be this way. Our confidence is in this certain victory that Christ accomplished and will accomplish. He will vanquish our doubts, our depression, wars, violence, immorality will be a distant memory. And, all, and though these things are surrounding us today, just like they were surrounding the Lord's king, back up in verse 2, God's sharpening his sword for one last push against evil. He who began this work of justice and mercy at the cross will certainly complete it. It would not make any sense uh, for God to to send his son at such cost to himself and not finish the job. Uh, And also the Lord said it. This is the declaration of the Lord. And he has sworn this oath and he will not take it back. And yet if we're honest, we do still struggle with doubts. We do wonder why it's been taking so long for this final day to come. We, we doubt God's goodness. We doubt his rule as we look at the wars and the trouble and the death and the sin around us and in us. And when we do that, we must let Psalm 110's reality penetrate our hearts and our souls and see this king with eyes of faith and be confident not in ourselves, not in how we feel about what's going on in us and around us, but this is what is real. What good has putting our confidence in ourselves and the circumstances around us gotten us and has gotten the world leaders? Not a lot, not a lot of good. As our priest king lifts up his head, like we see here in verse 7, 
I'd encourage you, Christian, to lift up your head. Even now, Christ will lift you up. He will refresh you with streams of living water in His Word. His Word is here to remind us, even now, what is real, that He reigns. He has given everything we need for life and godliness because Christ reigns. He represents us. He intercedes for us, praying for us even now. And He's given us His Spirit to convict us, to comfort us, to help us. The Lord reigns. He's for us, and He will return. This last Friday, we remembered and celebrated longtime church member Fran Sturgis. Uh, Fran's confidence throughout her life was in the Lord. And we trust that her confidence is now vindicated. Her faith, we trust, is now made sight. Likewise, in January 1546, Protestant reformer Martin Luther was dying, the one who had struggled so much with confidence in the Lord, with assurance of salvation. Martin's friends asked him, Martin, are you ready to die trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and to confess the doctrine which you have taught in His name? Luther's clear and confident reply. I'm trying to, he didn't talk about all he had done. It's like, yeah, I mean, I pretty much changed the world. Yes, he was confident in Christ and the doctrine that he has taught in his name. And then Luther took his last breath. In that day, there was expectations when someone would die in the church of different ceremonies and ecclesiological activities. But when Luther died, there was no priest present, no sacraments administered, and no last confession was made other than that simple yes, I'm confident in Christ. We trust that Fran and Luther and all those who have gone before us now see that they were right to put their confidence in Christ. I'm sure that they would tell us, based on what they know now, that we should do the same. And how much more so? Because, not ourselves, but because of who Christ is and what He has done. So Christian, today in a broken world filled with, with war and trouble, we have gathered to remember the source of our confidence in life and in death. Christ alone. We can be confident if we belong to Him that He will reign in our lives and He will save us. So will you place your confidence in Him today? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, all other sources of confidence will fail us. But Lord, because you live forever to intercede for us, even now we can entrust ourselves with all our weaknesses, all our doubts, all our sins to you. 
knowing that you love us, that you are for us, and that you will reign. And Lord, that you will make all things new. So Lord, we pray that you would hasten that day and we pray that you would hold us fast until we greet you face to face. So keep us, Lord. Lord, help us to walk in repentance and faith even today with a strong confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I hope you are encouraged and challenged to put your confidence in none other but Christ, our King, Priest, and Returning One. Now receive this blessing from God's Word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.